follow Christ just because of how you live your life out in front of other people. It's, it's like the old adage that says, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. So our Sunday school teacher was asking us if we lived our lives that way, and I remember being really convicted about that question. I remember really thinking about that long and hard and feeling this strong sense of conviction that maybe, uh, maybe my life was not a clear reflection of Jesus Christ in me. Maybe it wasn't obvious to other people that I was a Christian by how I lived. And so I decided that I would try to behave uh, more like Jesus, more like I thought Jesus would. And since John tells us that God is love in uh, 1 John 4, 8, it made sense to me to try and be as perfect an example of love as I could possibly be. So I tried this little exercise based on what the Bible says about love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6, where the Apostle Paul says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And since God is love... And I wanted to be more like God. I simply uh, replaced the word love in those verses with my own name. So I would say, Rob is patient and kind. And then I would ask myself whether or not that was a true statement. And of course, the answer was, well, sometimes. <laughs> not too bad, though. I thought the important thing is I'm really going to make an effort to be more patient and to be kinder than before. And then I would continue. Rob does not envy or boast. Okay, it's not so bad. Rob is not arrogant or rude. It's getting a little tougher. Rob does not insist on his own way. At this point, the room feels like it's getting hotter. <laughs> Rob is not irritable or resentful. Okay, forget it, right? At this point, I'm becoming completely unraveled because sometimes my behavior just doesn't line up with this description of love, if I'm honest. And yet at the same time, it never felt totally hopeless to me because improving on verses 4 and 5 seemed like it was simply a matter of modifying my behavior. If I could just try harder, over time, I could become kinder, more patient, less resentful, less envious, less rude, and so on, which means my behavior would be more like Jesus, simple enough. And although I think I knew that I may never completely measure up to that standard, I always felt that I understood that I understood what I needed to do. I could sort of see my way forward uh, at least until I got to verse 6. Verse 6 says, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And that was always a bit less clear to me. What exactly does it mean to rejoice with the truth? If you think about it, that's a funny little phrase. Am I, am I supposed to jump up and down every time I read the Bible? Or does it mean just being happy maybe when people are honest with me? Rejoicing with the truth. It's an interesting little phrase because rather than rejoicing because of the truth or rejoicing in response to some truth, Paul says that love rejoices with the truth, which seems to imply an empathy, this identification with the truth, not just some reaction to the truth. And sure enough, the Greek word used in verse 6 for rejoice is, is the word sunkerio. It means to sympathize in gladness. And of course, we know that Jesus is not only the embodiment of love, but he is the truth as well. He says as much in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. 
which happens to be the same word for truth that Paul uses here in verse 6. It's the Greek word aletheia. And so rejoicing with the truth means that we empathize with, we, we gladly identify ourselves with Jesus, who is the truth. And so we don't merely rejoice because of Jesus, but we also identify ourselves with Jesus. We rejoice in the same things that he rejoices in as we reflect his life in ours, which is also one of the ways that other people will recognize him in us. When we rejoice with the truth, when we identify our lives with his life. So it's not about trying to be Christ, as we heard in the video. It's about being a living reflection of Christ. It's submitting our lives to the spirit of Christ that is within every true believer and follower of Jesus. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, a Christian is a mind through which Christ thinks, a heart through which Christ loves, a voice through which Christ speaks, and a hand through which Christ helps. The Apostle Paul expresses the same sentiment in his own words when he wrote, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. You see, rejoicing with the truth is willingly and joyfully identifying our lives with His. It's being joyfully satisfied when His purposes are accomplished through us, in our lives. And so becoming more like him is much more than simply a matter of modifying our behavior or trying harder. Because the fact is we cannot work our way into Christ-likeness. We cannot. We're not good enough. We're not strong enough or honorable enough. We are not virtuous enough or righteous enough by our own strength to become like Christ. And yet, when we submit ourselves to his spirit, within us. That's the key. And we identify ourselves then with Him. By His Spirit, we, we then become a living reflection of Christ to the point that when people see us, they see Him. Not because we are Him, of course, but because we reflect His Spirit within us. And this is, this is the very struggle that Peter finds himself in in our story today as we continue to work our way through the gospel according to John. Peter is refusing to identify himself with Jesus because he's more interested at this point in self-preservation than he is with self-identification with Jesus, with Christ. This is Peter's struggle. His desires, his purposes are not lining up with the purposes and desires of Jesus Christ. And to be honest, I would say this is the very same struggle that many Christians face today. Being willing uh, to joyfully identify ourselves with Jesus Christ in every situation, in every circumstance that we face, even in just our daily living. The willingness to reflect Him, His purposes, His teaching, His heart, even when our desires and our purposes and our heart uh, are different than His. When we, when we find ourselves facing a decision, am I going to do this my way, according to what I desire, or will I do it His way? according to his will. This is the life lesson that Peter needed to learn, and it's one that we also must learn. So let's pick up our story right where we left off last time at verse 15. And as we read through this story and talk about Peter's struggle and how that relates to us today, let's also ask ourselves very honestly, is my life a living reflection of Christ? Because I'll just tell you, that question is at times for me just as convicting today 
as it was then as a kid growing up in church. So let's read the story together, starting with verses 15 and 16, which is just after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's taken to the high priest for questioning. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So Peter and another disciple followed Jesus, and it is generally accepted by many scholars, if not most, that the other disciple was John himself for several reasons. First of all, John never refers to himself by name in his gospel account, but he will often refer to himself as the other disciple, as in chapter 20, verse 2, or the disciple whom Jesus loved, as in chapter 13, verse 23. And so when John refers indeterminately here in verse 15 to another disciple, it would be true to form with the rest of his writing for this to be a reference to himself as well. He's consistently portrayed in this gospel and in Acts to be very closely associated with Peter throughout their dealings concerning Jesus. And the detail in John's account of this interrogation as well also suggests that John was an eyewitness to these events. In verse 18, as we'll see, he mentions that the fire they had in the courtyard was a charcoal fire. He's the only gospel writer to mention that. There's a lot of detail in John's description. As well, there's significant evidence that John may have been a member of a priestly group within the Sanhedrin, which is not in conflict, by the way, with the fact that we know he was also a fisherman, like his father Zebedee. Okay? Uh, first of all, his family was well off. Zebedee's business employed uh, servants. They had hired hands, which we know from Mark 1.20, which meant they had money, more than most fishermen's families. And so John grew up in some measure of privilege. And in first century society, even rabbis were expected to learn a trade skill, which is why the Apostle Paul, who was a well-known and highly educated Pharisee, was also a leather worker and a tent maker. So the point being, that in verse 15, John says the other disciple was known to the high priest. And the Greek word for known here is the word gnostos, which literally means well-known. It's used in ancient literature to, oh, it always suggests a, far more than just a casual acquaintance. So it makes sense that if John was indeed a part of a priestly family, then he would have surely been known by the high priest of the Sanhedrin. So all of that to say... We believe this was John himself along with Peter following Jesus and he was also able to get Peter into the courtyard because of his relationship with the high priest. So let's keep reading then as Peter and John are now given admittance to the proceedings. Verses 17 and 18. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Okay, so if, if John was known to the high priest, then he was clearly also well-known as one of Jesus' disciples, would have been. And so the same servant girl who just admitted John, a known disciple of Jesus, asks Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? In other words, she knows that John is with Jesus, and he vouches for Peter to be given entry into the courtyard. So it's natural for her to assume that Peter, too, is a disciple. So in what amounts to more of an accusation than a question, she says, in essence, you're one of his disciples also, aren't you? 
And rather than testifying to the work of Christ in that moment, Peter chose to disassociate himself with Jesus. He chose not to reflect the purpose of Christ because he was intimidated by his surroundings, right? If, if John was a member of a priestly family, he was at least somewhat familiar with these surroundings, but not Peter. This was a foreign environment for him. And so all that he was interested in in that moment was blending in with the crowd. Verse 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And in true John fashion, just as he, he often uses phrases throughout his writing with double meanings, he paints a picture here of Peter standing with the enemy. Jesus is tried, being tried here illegally, by the way. John says Peter also was with them. As John says it was cold, even though uh, Passover is in the spring. Jerusalem's about a half a mile above sea level, so even in the springtime, it can get quite cold at night, cold enough for a fire, which tells us this was at night. And nighttime proceedings in the Jewish system were illegal. So Peter's literally and figuratively participating in an illegal trial, standing against Jesus by both his actions and his denials of being one of his disciples. And Peter had a golden opportunity here to reflect the purpose of Christ in his own life. But he allowed himself to be so intimidated by his surroundings that the only thing he actually reflected was his own fear. Back in chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew that Peter would be completely taken off guard here, intimidated by his surroundings. And so he reassures Peter and the others not to be troubled or afraid when the time comes. And then he says, if you loved me, you would rejoice with me because my purpose is being fulfilled. I'm going to the Father. Yet clearly Peter's not rejoicing with Jesus here. And then again, right after Peter cuts the ear off of the high priest's servant, Jesus says to him, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? John 18, 11. In other words, don't you want me to fulfill the purpose that the Father has given me? In chapter 13, verse 37, just after Jesus explains that he's going to be leaving them, Peter stands up and boldly proclaims, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Well, Peter, here's your big chance. You got exactly what you asked for. You followed Jesus, and now you have an amazing opportunity to lay your life down for him, to reflect his purpose in your own life, and he blows it because he allowed his unfamiliar surroundings to intimidate him. However, before we get too critical about Peter here, I just want to put this into our own context for a little perspective because I think it's easy when we're all together just as Jesus was with his disciples before his arrest, I think it's easy for us when we're in familiar surroundings, gathered with each other, like-minded believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's easy then to talk about what we plan to do for Christ in a world that is increasingly hostile toward him. And no doubt we mean it, right, with all sincerity, just as I believe Peter did. But how quickly 
Do we buckle under the pressure and intimidation of unfamiliar surroundings and inhospitable company? As much as our culture has changed in this country just in the last generation or two, I believe that the American church is increasingly finding itself in unfamiliar surroundings. Never before, at least in our lifetime, has the church on such a large scale had to defend basic biblical principles and positions that have historically been accepted in much of American society as truth. But what's surprising about that is not the fact that our culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward the church and the gospel. That's just the world being the world. That's not surprising at all. What is surprising is that the church is becoming more and more intimidated by our culture to the point that we're buckling under the pressure. Jesus once said about Peter's own confession that on this rock, the proclamation of the gospel, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. And yet many elements of the American church today, rather than reflecting the purposes of Christ by our bold proclamation of the gospel, are instead rewriting the gospel out of a fear of being labeled as intolerant. And in the process, we're becoming increasingly impotent, and I think in danger of becoming utterly useless in accomplishing the purposes of Christ from a fear of falling out of favor with our society. Now, the church shouldn't be judgmental. Understand where I'm coming from. We shouldn't be judgmental of the world. We're supposed to love the world. But we should also not be intimidated by it. The Apostle Paul said, What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 1 Corinthians 5.12. It's not our job to judge those outside the church. We're just supposed to love people who aren't a part of the body of Christ. We're commanded to love them. We're also commanded to hold one another inside the church to account. But we don't judge the world. But that also does not mean that we cower before those who are hostile toward the gospel when we find ourselves in unfamiliar surroundings, as Peter did. We're supposed to reflect the purposes of Christ no matter our surroundings, even when others are openly hostile toward us. In uh, Acts 18, 5 through 10, it describes Paul in this very situation in Corinth. It says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, the worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." You see, God had a purpose for Paul while he was in Corinth. And as long as God had a purpose for Paul to be there, Paul had no reason to fear because God was with him, which meant that he would accomplish that purpose through Paul, come what may, even in unfamiliar and hostile surroundings. Listen, God has you and me, he has us here for a purpose, which means we have no reason to fear 
because he is with us and he will accomplish that purpose through us even when our surroundings become unfamiliar and hostile. We have no reason to be afraid. Yet all you have to do is look at the laws passed and the sway of popular opinion just in our lifetime concerning uh, sacred issues like the sanctity of human life, the covenant of marriage that, by the way, was created and defined by God himself, and even the attempt now to redefine gender itself. All efforts not only to change public perception and policy concerning some of the most foundational moorings of our society, but they are also all attempts to muzzle the church. And shockingly, much of the church has either remained silent or surrendered its message to those false teachers among us who are more than willing to prostitute it for their own personal gain and popularity by making it culturally acceptable at any cost. It doesn't seem likely to me, at least under the current cultural climate in our nation, that the road ahead for the church is going to get easier or friendlier. But listen, that is no reason to be afraid. Because God is sovereign. He's in control. And he says his church will advance the gospel. So we have no reason to fear, to be afraid. But we do have a choice before us. One that we may be forced to make at some point in the future when our surroundings become increasingly unfamiliar and overtly hostile. Will we choose to reflect the purpose of Christ in our lives or in fear will we instead stand with the world? just as Peter did, which, by the way, did not have uh, the effect that Peter was hoping for. Instead of relieving the pressure, the heat was just getting turned up even more, as we'll see. Let's keep reading, verses 19 through 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And honest then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So first, just a note about the high priest, because John says here that Jesus was being questioned by the high priest, and we know that he was being questioned by Annas, which we're told back in verse 13. But then in verse 24, John says, Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So who's the high priest, Annas or Caiaphas? Well, Caiaphas was the high priest that year, with Annas being his father-in-law, according to verse 13. So why did they take Jesus to Annas first, and why refer to him as the high priest as well? It's because in the eyes of the Jews, Annas was the true high priest. The Romans had previously deposed Annas, uh, who was appointed for life, according to Mosaic legislation, and therefore could not be deposed, as far as the Jews were concerned. And so although they knew that under Roman law, Jesus would eventually have to go through Caiaphas before being ultimately judged and condemned by the, the Roman governor, they still wanted him to see Annas first because to them, he was the true high priest. And so Annas then asks Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. 
And Jesus gives him a really interesting response. In essence, he says, Did you really drag me all the way down here to ask me about my teaching and my disciples? Because you can ask just about anyone in this city and they will tell you all about my teaching and my disciples. I have done nothing in secret. And it was much more actually than just a sharp comeback by Jesus. He was actually challenging honest to follow the proper legal protocol for a Jewish trial. Uh, in that system, prisoners were not compelled. They were not required to testify or answer questions. Furthermore, witnesses had to be called to testify on behalf of and against the accused. But none of that was happening. This entire proceeding was illegal. Jesus was arrested and dragged away to a trial at night, which was illegal. He was taken to an unofficial high priest and interrogated against their own protocol. So this entire uh, proceeding up to this point was a sham, and Jesus knew it. And so he challenges the legality of what they're doing. And in response, Jesus gets slapped in the face by one of the officers, which was, uh, by the way, also illegal. It was against the law, against Jewish law, to strike a prisoner. So Jesus' response back to them is simply to challenge them again to follow their own procedures when he says, if, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. In other words, call a witness. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? I can't, I can't help but think about, certainly although expected, still how incredulous this whole scene must have been for Jesus. In Colossians 1, 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul, speaking of Jesus Christ, says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So Jesus who was there with the Father and the Holy Spirit creating the heavens and the earth, who was there populating it with plants and animals and people, who was there as this officer, the one who just slapped him in the face, Jesus was there as his soul was created and life was breathed into his flesh. He's now getting slapped in the face illegally by the same man. It's a good thing. I'm not God. <laughs> I can't imagine what he must have been thinking. At an illegal trial, after being illegally arrested at night, as his own disciples either abandon him or stand outside, denying that they even know him, this man is slapping him in the face. I can't imagine everything that must have been going through Jesus' mind in that moment. But there was no secret conspiracy. His teaching that he was being asked about was the same to his disciples as when they were alone with him, as it was when he was in public. He never changed a word of it. He never denied it or tried to hide it. And listen, he commanded no less from his followers. This is how we're supposed to live. He taught them to be like him, to reflect his teaching at all times, openly sharing it with the world, not hiding it or denying it. But Peter didn't get that. Peter didn't reflect the teachings of Christ. When it came time to put it into practice, as long as he was at church, right, as long as he was with his fellow believers, as long as he was with people who agreed with his faith, 
Peter was bold and unashamed and ready to stand up for the gospel. But as soon as it came time to put those teachings of Christ into practice, when surrounded by those who didn't share the same convictions, Peter shrank back into the shadows, which makes his own later statement in 1 Peter 2.9 all the more poignant as Peter finally learned to live boldly for Christ, no matter his surroundings. He said to his fellow believers, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, eventually Peter learned to reflect the teachings of Christ in his own life, and so must we. It's not about being obnoxious. It's about being honest. It's about being honest about the truth. That means knowing the truth. Opinions are okay. Everybody has them. But when it comes to the gospel and how that teaching interacts with and shapes our worldview, our perspectives on life and religion and relationships and God, every day we have the opportunity to represent that gospel in public, especially since the advent of social media where everyone now can mass communicate with a few keystrokes from their living room. It is an almost unbelievable privilege that we've been given the ability to communicate the gospel with other human beings, which also means we have a profound responsibility to do our level best to get it right, to honestly and accurately reflect and honor the Word of God, to reflect the teachings of Christ to the world. And so listen, our opinions and positions that we offer to other people, they must be rooted in Scripture. And I understand that not everyone interprets Scripture the same, which is a different discussion for another day. But if we're going to reflect the teachings of Christ, then first of all, we need to know what they are. We're responsible to know what the Word of God says. And then we have to honestly and accurately and unashamedly share that with other people, even when surrounded by those who are hostile to that message. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Mark 16, 15. Not just the parts that agree with us or to the parts that are open to hearing it, Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And if anyone experienced the consequences of doing just that, second to Jesus himself, it was Paul. Second Timothy 3, 12 through 17, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're responsible to know the teachings of Christ and to accurately reflect those teachings in our lives every day, no matter who is around us. So it is, it's vital that we know what we believe, that we can back that up in Scripture. Otherwise, we're just floating opinions that carry no weight. 
no power, no lasting effect, which unfortunately I think is very common today. There's no shortage of people who claim to be spiritual, who teach all manner of doctrine, who offer all kinds of opinions and solutions with no foundation for those philosophies whatsoever other than how they personally feel about something. But listen, we're not merely spiritual people. We're God's people. We belong to Christ. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Listen, the world doesn't need our opinions. The world doesn't need our clever ideas. The world doesn't need a more polished religious presentation. The world doesn't need hollow promises that God never made. The world doesn't need a message that won't offend anyone. It surely doesn't need to be coddled, reassured that everything will be okay regardless of what they believe. No, what the world needs is Jesus Christ. And it is our responsibility to point them to him by telling them the truth, by reflecting his teachings in our lives every single day. That's the most effective way to spread the gospel. Peter couldn't do it, not at this point in his journey. He failed to reflect the purpose of Christ and the teachings of Christ. And as we finish our story for today, it becomes clear what it all boils down to for Peter and for us. Let's read verses 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Uh-oh. Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, the prediction from Jesus in John chapter 13 that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed has now been fulfilled, even though Peter's been trying to blend in. He's been trying not to make waves. He's tried to brush off the questions about his affiliation with Jesus, but one of the relatives of Malchus, the man whose ear Peter had cut off, happens to be there. Now imagine you've witnessed someone cut off the ear of one of your relatives right in front of you. You probably wouldn't forget what that man looked like, right? Ultimately, there was no getting out of it. There was no escaping his relationship to Jesus. And so as Peter is confronted a third time, he knows that he's running out of options. The people in that courtyard aren't buying his denials. It's becoming increasingly difficult for him to hide who he really is, but he, he desperately wants to. And so in that moment, he has a choice to make. Either embrace the truth and represent, reflect Jesus in the face of almost certain persecution, or make one last desperate attempt to disassociate himself from the Christ. And of course, he chooses the latter, and he does so in dramatic fashion, uh, which we read in much more detail in Peter. As Peter is questioned for the third time, Matthew's account says, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
Matthew 26, 73 through 75, okay? At the very same moment that Jesus was fully embracing his purpose, the very same moment that Jesus was embracing his purpose and personifying his own teaching under intense interrogation by those hostile to his message, Peter at that same moment was calling down curses on himself and swearing, doing everything that he could to deny the purposes and teachings of Christ while he was being intensely interrogated in the courtyard by those hostile to the same message. Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing while Peter draws back from his questioners and denies everything. How could Peter who has been a part of Jesus' inner circle for years, one of his closest disciples, who vowed to die for Jesus and just moments earlier cuts the ear off of one of the men who came to arrest him. This fiery disciple of Christ, so passionate about following Jesus, how could he be so far off the mark? It's because at this point in his journey, Peter didn't reflect the heart of Christ. Why? Why didn't he reflect the heart of Christ? It's, it's because Peter was still hanging on to his own agenda, you see. He had a great idea about Jesus, as they all did. They, they had their own agenda for Jesus, their own plans for how they thought he would lead them. And when Jesus' actions didn't line up with their plans, they panicked and they began to react in ways that did not reflect the heart of Christ. Does that mean that Peter's faith in Jesus was disingenuous? No, not at all. Peter was a true believer. Does it mean that Peter was not serious about following Jesus and the commitment that he made to do so? No, Peter was legitimately committed to Jesus, okay? None of what Peter did here shows his faith in or commitment to Christ to be counterfeit. What it does show is that we can genuinely believe in Christ and follow him with all sincerity and commitment and still not reflect his heart. Think about that. We can genuinely believe in Jesus Christ and follow him with sincerity and commitment and still not reflect his heart, which I believe, by the way, is a common reality in the modern church today. If we don't understand the true heart of Christ, it is nearly impossible to reflect the purposes and teachings of Christ accurately in our own lives which again is why I believe so many have left the church over the past couple of generations because the church, well-meaning as it may be and as sincere and committed to the message of the gospel as it has been, has not always reflected the heart of Christ. We've been judgmental toward the world. We've made certain sins unpardonable while winking at others. We've been more interested in spreading our politics than we have with spreading the gospel. We've been more concerned about winning arguments than we are with winning hearts. We focused more on being culturally relevant than we have with creating a culture within the church that truly honors Christ. We've replaced the teaching of the Word of God with motivational speeches that excite our emotions but leave our souls empty. We've, we've created an entire industry around Western church culture. But I'm afraid we've missed the heart of God. Which is exactly what happens 
when we refuse to let him lead us, when we want to follow him as long as he leads us just how we think he should. That's the best way to completely miss the heart of Christ, when we focus on our agenda just like Peter did instead of his. If we're going to reflect the heart of Christ, then we have to let him lead. We have to submit our will to his. We have to defer our way to his way. We have to accept that he is in control and that he knows what he's doing even when we don't understand what he's doing. And sometimes we even have to forego our plans in deference to his. Why? Because we're not in charge. We're not called to be Jesus Christ. We're called to be a living reflection of Christ. And that means we reflect his purposes, we reflect his teachings, which we can only do fully when we reflect his heart. Abraham Lincoln once said, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. I think that's sometimes why God allows our plans to crash and burn so that we'll stop denying his sovereignty in our lives and learn to truly become a living reflection of Christ. Let's pray.